Good morning and welcome back to Tuesday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks neared all-time highs amid company earnings and data showing strength in the economy. Pinko Total Return loses its title as the world's biggest bond mutual fund. And China stocks rise the most in a week as developers and utilities jump. Today, our discussion is focused on the bull market. Will it last in the U.S.? And what does that mean for Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong? We'll talk with Mark Matthews of Julius Baer and then John Saunders of BlackRock Real Estate. And our last guest this morning is Mirko Marsadella from Technential, who talks about automated risk management systems. Connie Bolland is back in the chair as guest host. Good morning, Connie. Good morning, Redita. So, Connie, Bill Gross of Janus Capital sounds depressed. He <laughs> said uh, in a note yesterday that he thinks the bull market will end with a whimper and not a bang. What do you think? Well, I think it all depends on the fast action, um, where, where and when um, it will sort of raises interest rates. At the moment, I don't think it has the room to do that. And people have delayed their, 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 their kind of uh, time span. Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, where is the US dollar heading? Because there are a lot of companies within the index that are you know, dependent on the US dollar because most of their earnings are derived from overseas. Uh, a lot of these multinationals. And the third thing is, uh, you know, technical firms. There are companies like Apple who which is doing extremely well, but there are also others may, who, that may just benefit from the liquidity. So it, it all depends on these three movements, how, how the bull market is going to end. Okay, well, U.S. stocks neared all-time highs amid company earnings and data showing strength in the economy. Factory orders rose in March by the most since July. This is, uh, you know, fuel, fuel speculation that a winter slowdown in the economy may have been short-lived. And earnings from Comcast and Berkshire Hathaway beat expectations, with more than 70% of the S&P 500 members exceeding profit estimates this season. The S&P 500 has gained three-tenths of a percent to close at 2,114. The euro weakened versus all but one of its 16 major peers, and yields on German notes jumped and rates on similar maturity treasuries climbed to a seven-week high. Keith Masters is the founder of Corvex Management, and he says that equities can be a short way to credit. I think equities are reasonably valued. Um, uh, we've had a good period of time because there's been a very – liquidity has driven asset values. Interest rates are low. Federal, central banks globally are accommodating. And um, if you put money in your wallet and it gets taken out every week, every month, that's what negative interest rates are. So if money goes in your wallet and disappears, you'll take that money and do something different. And people are doing something different. They're buying equities. So as long as the playbook is low rates and accommodating central banks – I think you'll see equities continue to appreciate. The challenge will be will be either A, when we start to see hints of inflation, which we haven't, or B, when we start to see asset bubbles build, which is the other risks of sort of free and loose money. But for now, I think equities are attractively priced. I don't think the risk return justifies owning credit. I'd rather be a borrower than a lender. And to me, the best way to short credit is to invest in a great business that's going to borrow money and reinvest in itself. So owning an equity that's going to take advantage of, uh, of access to cheap capital, invest to buy businesses, build plant and equipment, buy back stock, pay dividends. I think that's a great way to short credit. So should the investor be worried then about the bull market ending with a whimper? Here's Mark Travis, CEO of Intrepid Capital. 
We certainly had a, a bull market in financial assets, particularly the last, you know, 36 months. I mean, look at uh, 13 and 14. You took the S&P up 50 percent. Um, so, you know, I don't think prices are compellingly cheap, and they could they could stay somewhat elevated and not drop precipitously, but not really make any forward progress. I prepare that prices can actually go down on any given day, and um, I like to have cash available to take advantage of those dislocations. As I like to say, to, to be fully invested today means there's no better opportunity tomorrow, and that's not an assumption we make in Intrepid Capital. So when it comes to bull markets, market field asset management CEO Michael Shaw is betting on Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong. He says that there are two times that equity markets really go up in a bull run, at the end and right at the beginning, which may be now. Yeah, I think you've got to remember that that was an equity market in the penalty box for seven years, basically. It collapsed in 07 and then just went sideways. So during that period of time, you really went from a really massively overvalued market to a very, you know, to a very cheap market. And it's not that abnormal that just as the bad news comes out and people really start throwing in the towel on any possibility of, of, of Chinese equities ever doing something for them, that was suddenly the point at which they did better. I do, do think the central bank has been absolutely key in this process. I think you do have to believe, or you did have to believe, that the PBOC would understand that monetary policy was much too tight and that they would start to move to a significantly easier monetary policy. And I think we're in the middle of that process. Shaw believes that a reasonable amount of money in China is going to get drawn into securities, but not necessarily the kind that the government is worried about. What you have in China is, is about 20% of the economy in genuine distress, real estate related. Um, you know, so for instance, today they announce, or potentially the FT says they're going to allow foreign bondholders to access uh, 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 Chinese bonds. They're not, there's not going to be a great deal of, of demand, I believe, for Chinese real estate developers' bonds. There may instead be a lot of demand for a consumer company's bonds or a bank's bonds. So I think the story in China is, is you're betting that they ease policy to deal with the crisis. You don't put your portfolio right in the middle of the crisis. You put it to one side and you try and work out which portions of the Chinese economy are doing okay and will start to accelerate as, as, as monetary policy um, starts to loosen. All right, let's bring in our market commentator who is normally based in Singapore but joins us in our Admiralty studio today, Mark Matthews, head of Asia Research at Julius Baer. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Renita. So, Mark, if we could just uh, start with the U.S., where earnings have clearly been strong. Analysts, uh, some of them, however, are still concerned about a bubble. Why is this? Um, Well, because I guess the NASDAQ has surpassed its 2,000 high, and um, the stock market is not cheap. In fact, um, if you look back 40 years, the average price-earnings ratio for the S&P is about 12 and a half times. And today we're on 18 times. And only less than 5% of the time in the past 40 years has the S&P exceeded uh, that multiple. So it's possible it could go higher, um, but... um, You know, it is richly priced. Now, to Bill Gross's point, you know, whether it ends with a bang or whether it ends with a whimper, does it really matter? 
well, I think it matters to the degree that if it's a whimper, you've got time to get out. And if it's a bang, I'm not really sure what he means by that, by the way. But if it means that it collapses, <laughs> then, of course, uh, you know, you can't get out in time. So, uh, yeah, it's important. Okay. And what, what does that mean for us here in Asia? I mean, do we care? Does it just give us an opportunity to ramp up our portfolios in uh, other markets? Well, if it's a whimper, in other words, you know, the, the, the U.S. market just sort of gradually the bull market peters out and it goes sideways, that would be a positive for us, I believe, because it would mean people diversify into other parts of the world. But if it's a big collapse, um, then, you know, the correlations will all rise and our markets will go down as well, just as they did in 2008. Now, um, do you agree, Mark, with Michael Shaw about uh, the idea of a potential bull run here in Hong Kong for Chinese stocks? Yes, I do. It has happened um, already, of course, since the uh, Chinese authorities um, said they would allow mainland Chinese mutual funds to participate in Hong Kong Shanghai Connect. And um, I read just yesterday that the uh, Shenzhen Hong Kong Connect could be accelerated to as soon as next month. So I think the conditions are in place. Um, if you add on to that, you know, relatively uh, low valuations in Hong Kong, I think the conditions are in place for a continued rise, yes. So, Mark, do you agree that um, this rally can last for another few months or, you know, is it the beginning of a bull market? Which one do you think it is? Well, I also, Connie, tend to agree with the previous commentator that it is uh, closer to the beginning than the end because, uh, just as he said, I'm repeating him, Hong Kong did nothing for five years. It That's was true. basically just in a flat trading range. And Shanghai was the first to break out in August, but Hong Kong only broke out um, you know, last month. So bull markets tend to last longer than one month. There's plenty of time to get your money in then. Yeah. Uh, well, the world's an uncertain place. I mean, the one thing that I enjoyed listening to all those comments from those um, intelligent um, participants, and, and uh, I, I must say that there there is a very consensus opinion built into stocks right now that you know interest rates are low and uh, major central banks are doing quantitative easing, but uh, growth is pretty good and. We all believe that. I believe that. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the uncertain uh, – the thing about the future is, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's uncertain. It might not be that way. So, But what about, a con you know, we have all this conventional wisdom of sell in May and go away. Mm. Or, you know, in, in Hong Kong, there is the sort of, uh, superstition about May and June being the worst months for investment. Well, it's true. I mean, it's very well documented that um, there is a seasonality in equity markets. And um, they do, of course, not every year follows this rule, but the average smooths out to be that the best times to invest are um, from January to May and then from October to uh, December. Well, I would tend to think so. Can, can you explain, uh, just for our listeners, why that is? Why is this seasonality built into the nature of the stock markets here? Uh, it's actually the global markets, and I think really led by the Western world. And I would have to think it comes down to holidays. You know, I think people just go on holiday in the summer. Okay. So, uh, you know, Mark... Scholl's strategy, um, he, he was very specific in that he said, well, th there are really two times that you see stocks go up. Equities really rise in a bull run at the beginning and at the end. And he feels that now, you know, could be the beginning. Um, you perhaps agree. How long do you think this could last? 
well, as I said, bull markets tend to last longer than a year. And in fact, um, they the really um, super cycle bull markets last over a decade. If you look back at the uh, Dow or the S&P, you can get a chart going back to uh, the 1900s in the case of the Dow, 1920s in the case of the S&P. Um, the cycles are very long. And so the U.S. obviously has been in a bull market for um, – uh, it's it's in its eighth year now, but um, I think he's right that you know China really has just started one, and um, they won't go up in a straight line. Uh, so you could easily get um, you know very large uh, downdraft within the context of a bull market. But I, I think he's right that China's still going to go up. So now he's specifically talking about uh, Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong. Uh, would you sort of uh, extend that to uh, you know? The Shanghai Compositors. We we we've seen so much of a you know bull run already. I mean, how much further can it go up? <laughs> uh, I ask myself the same question uh, several times a day because uh, yeah, truly that's a parabolic chart which uh, you don't want to see. But uh, I, I'd make a couple of points. The first is that the um, Morgan Stanley and Financial Times indices will probably include uh, mainland Chinese shares um, at some point. In the case of Financial Times this year, Morgan Stanley next year, and there's quite a lot of money which will uh, need to go in there just to achieve a, a passive um, a benchmark weighting in order to track those uh, markets and in order, in order to track those emerging market indices. And when I look at the shares outstanding in the largest mainland China ETF in the U.S., um, there, there's been no increase in them uh, since this bull market started last year. So mm. I don't really think that foreigners have bought into this uh, Shanghai rally. Um, and then the other thing is um, that uh, you know, state-owned enterprise uh, reform is a, a major part of um, Xi Jinping's overall reform platform, and part of that is uh, listing them on the stock market to provide um, you know greater transparency, greater efficiency, and uh, and also doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And um, state-owned enterprises are seventy percent of China's market cap, far larger than any other country in the world. So that also should be beneficial from a cash flow perspective and ultimately what moves shares is cash flow. Yeah, and and then you got uh, monetary policy. I mean, Shell's strategy um, involves trying to work out which portions of the Chinese economy are okay and then which will start to accelerate as monetary policy starts to loosen. Uh, what would you say, uh, you know, what part of China would you say is protected, say, from a Fed hike rate? Well, actually, the if we're talking about the Shanghai Composite and, and mainland stocks, they are uh, they are protected. If you look at the correlation of that um, that index and and the other um, you know Chinese indices to the world markets or the S and P, uh, it is it is a meaningless correlation because it's been a closed capital market and the foreigners have not got in. Uh, that'll change as it does, you know, integrate and Morgan Stanley and Financial Times include them and, and foreigners buy them. But for now, uh, mainland shares uh, are, are a very uncorrelated asset, and, and therefore, um, yeah, I think they are protected from a Fed rate hike. All right, let's bring in our next guest, John Saunders, who is the head of Asia-Pacific at BlackRock Real Estate. Good morning, John. Good morning. John, you know, China's stocks rose the most in a week, led by property and power companies. Um, of course, these are now amid signs that the real estate market is stabilizing. The Shanghai Property Index climbed to a record high after Sofun Holdings data showed home prices climbed in Beijing and Shanghai, and the Shanghai Composite climbed 
I think almost 1% to 4480 at the close. So, you know, there's been this gauge of property developers, which has climbed 3.5% for the steepest gain among five industry groups. Can you tell us why? Yeah, look, I think it's, uh, you know, obviously the last few years for the property market in China have been very, very difficult. Um, And what you've seen recently is policy moves to try and shore up what until recently was a a falling market with uh, significant reductions in demand and still a, a fairly substantial amount of building and new construction. So you had too much supply, not enough demand, which is never great for pricing. Um, I think what you've seen really is the, you know, people reacting to the the government's moves to, in a policy sense, to try and shore that market up. The question is whether it's, uh, whether it's sustainable in the, uh, in the medium term, I think. So it certainly seems like uh, these policy moves are working. Um, why do you say that they may not be sustainable or that that remains to be seen? Well, I think you still have a lot of supply to, uh, you know, to deal with. And what you're seeing is the, is the very early uh, stages of uh, some pricing recovery off a low base in a small number of cities. I'm not saying that it won't be sustainable, but I think it's the, you know, the old adage that one data point doesn't necessarily make you a trend yet. Well, John, it seems that uh, in China, um, the supply situation is much worse in, uh, in the smaller cities, like the second and third tier, mm. than the first tier cities. And so... Would you say that it is uh, um, uh, fair, fair to it be, it be safer to put your money in the first tier city if you really want to invest in the real estate in China than the second or third tier? Um, I think once you start getting into the third tier cities, I think there you can have some big problems with mismatch of supply. Um, I think though people are often too too quick to kind of write off second-tier cities. I mean, we do a lot of work in Chengdu, for example, and you talk about that as a tier two city, and I think sometimes people's eyes glaze over and they assume it's a sort of small town with a few sort of shacks around the, you know, a a main street. And of course, you know, you've got nearly 12 million people, and it's a hugely vibrant centre of, you know, commerce and population. So I wouldn't write off all of the tier two cities. I think, you know, talking about China as one homogeneous market is a bit like talking about Europe or a bit like talking about the US. You know, there are wild variations in performance. Um, But some tier two cities do perfectly well. In fact, they can often beat the performance of some of the tier ones at times. John, uh, Michael Scholl of Marketfield Asset Management says that as money flows into Chinese securities, it won't be into developers' bonds. Do you agree? Um, yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a hard asset real estate guy, so I work in the you know, alternatives uh, business in, within BlackRock, so I'm not necessarily the most qualified to talk stocks and bonds. Um, but I think you know, when we look at uh, investing in China, we're relatively agnostic as to how we, uh, how we enter. You know, if we think the debt is cheaper than the equity, then we don't have a problem, you know, accessing through the debt. And I think in some cases, you know, some of the, the debt and credit is, uh, is looking extremely cheap. But of course, in some cases, there's a very good reason for that. And we've already had, you know, one fairly spectacular, uh, uh, you know, business failure in that regard of a listed developer. Mm. Um, not BlackRock, of course, but, you know, you've already seen a developer go fairly publicly into problems with their debt. So there can be some good reasons for that. Yeah. Mark, what, what do you think based upon what John is saying? 
About what? Sorry. Uh, about the fact that uh, perhaps money won't flow into developers' bonds in China. I think there's still a sort of Damocles hand, hanging over the sector. Uh, you know, I, but but people are so desperate for yield globally that they they are willing to go out the risk spectrum. So I think what they're doing is they're choosing companies which have a majority of their businesses in um, you know first tier cities where. Their inventories are uh, not stale, and where there's some state-owned enterprise affi- affiliation, you know, they're they're protected by the government in some uh, way. All right. Well, thank you, uh, gentlemen, for joining us this morning. That was uh, Mark Matthews, head of uh, Asia Research at Julius Baer, and John Saunders, head of Asia Pacific at BlackRock Real Estate. Let's take a quick look at the numbers now. Australia's ASX index is up two-tenths of a percent to 5,827. In currencies, one euro is currently worth 1.11 U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is currently trading at 120 Point one one yen and one pound sterling will buy you eleven Hong Kong dollars and seventy two cents. When buying a first-hand residential property, always find out about a mortgage loan first before signing the preliminary agreement. Don't accept a loan from an estate agent to pay the deposit. If you don't sign the agreement within five working days after signing the preliminary agreement, you'll forfeit your deposit, which is equivalent to five percent of the purchase price. The sales of first-hand residential properties of Authority reminds you, think before signing. Smart first-hand home buying. The time is now 8.24 a.m. and risk management is often perceived to be a liability rather than an asset. This morning we have Technantial's Executive Director Mirko Marsadella, who is visiting Hong Kong from Europe to tell us about a risk management tool and how it could be powerful. Good morning, Mirko. Good morning. So Mirko, can you explain to us in layman's terms what exactly is meant uh, by risk online risk management uh, tool? Yes, uh, our company, Technantial, has developed in the last 10 years uh, an uh, expertise in uh, supporting clients, our clients with our brokers and banks, uh, in dealing with uh, intraday real-time risk management and trade surveillance. This is very complicated, looks very complicated, but if we look at how markets evolved in the last years, we see that on one side there is uh, a, a electronic markets became more and more volatile and there is a lot of uh, um, algorithms involved, more than 50% of uh, market uh, volumes are today managed by machines uh, almost everywhere in the world. And on the other side, after 2008 financial crisis, uh, regulators have imposed a number of new regulations coming from US, Europe and Asia as well. And it's very difficult to manage uh, and to protect investors and protect uh, trading activities uh, uh, using traditional risk management tools that are usually looking at risk management uh, with a perspective of uh, uh, the next day or even two days after. Uh, So uh, risk management need to be today intraday as close to real time as possible. And this is exactly where our product should Janus is is designed for. So how exactly does it work when you say, you know, it looks at things, it's real time, but looks as far as the next day or two days later. What exactly does it do? 
what we do is uh, we we uh, first of all we think that risk management need to be as close to to the trading activity as possible and need to to uh, detect defects uh, and in the trading activities of of users in trading activities of uh, uh, machines as as close to real time as possible need to, to react uh, in in microseconds uh, today markets are so fast that machines can produce thousands of messages per second if you do not react in 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 microseconds mm. uh, the the uh, the damages that can be caused uh, in uh, uh, can be very very difficult to recover and would you say that tools like this are becoming more of a um Oh, would you call it a threat to traditional uh, risk management uh, departments? Not really. I think that uh, uh, traditional risk management uh, still has has a value. Uh, it continues to be a, a value for uh, measuring enterprise risk management. But uh, uh, if you look uh, at how uh, today risk managers and execution desk, prime brokers, uh, online brokers, they are all uh, little structure to manage uh, intraday risk and and, uh, and and to react to situations this is also an opportunity to uh, increase business uh, because managing uh, better uh, risk management intraday means also providing um, to to our clients that are brokers uh, an opportunity to uh, um, give to their clients uh, um, being them retails or institutional a better management of their money a better management and, and opportunities to trade more trade more markets uh, generate more volumes uh, and generate more revenues now that's an interesting point you bring up because you know your clients are brokers and banks but you know uh, the idea is that uh, the benefits filter down to the retail investors how about going Going directly to the retail investors, do they not need tools like this? Uh, indirectly, uh, uh, they, yeah, they need, but uh, uh, we, we in fact go down to the to the retail, but indirectly through our our clients and ba- that are banks and brokers that provide our tools down to the to the retail. Uh, indirectly, we we do or, or already. All right, Mirko, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Mirko Marsadella. He is the executive director of the Technential Company. A uh, quick look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. Australia's ASX index is now up uh, 1% one, 1% to 5,875. In uh, uh, Gold is currently valued at $1,186.70 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $66.42. So, Connie, here we are at the end of our Tuesday morning. Uh, what should we be keeping our eye on as we progress into the week? Yeah, we talk a lot about uh, the U.S. and Hong Kong and Chinese market this uh, this morning. Uh, but um, back in Europe, there will be uh, some some outcomes of negotiations from the the, the new team in Greece and uh, with the uh, European uh, Union. And uh, in Britain, there is an election coming up, and well, we'll have to see whether there will be eventually a referendum on whether the UK wants to be within the EU or not. And that might make all the difference. All right, Connie. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And every Tuesday morning, that is Connie Balland, and she is the founder and chief economist of the Economic Research Analysis. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with a few showers. Uh, the maximum temperature will be around 29 degrees. Currently, it's 27 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity is 84%. 
time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Rescue workers in Nepal say they believe more than 300 people were killed in a single village in a popular trekking area following the devastating earthquake 10 days ago. 150 foreign trekkers are thought to be among the dead. Rescuers say it could be weeks before all the bodies are recovered. The BBC's Justin Rowlett visited the village. Langtang Village was one of the most popular trekking destinations in Nepal and home to 435 people. But there is virtually nothing left. The earthquake caused a massive avalanche and a landslide. It's hard to believe, but 55 hotels and guest houses and the villagers' homes are gone under this great tongue of ice and rock. One of two gunmen shot dead as they attacked a contest to draw cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad in Texas has been identified as a previous terrorism suspect. Quoting law enforcement officials, U.S. newspapers said Elton Simpson was suspected of trying to fly overseas to wage holy war. They said he shared an apartment in Arizona with the other gunman, identified as Nadia Sufi. Police said they would, police would only 